Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we will be asking about the role of the arts in economic development with Patrick Kabanda. In 2017, a painting by Leonardo da Vinci sold for $450 million. Two years before that, a Willem de Kooning sold for $300 million. When people think of the economic value of art, these are the kind of things that come to mind. Paintings as investments, commodities that are bought and sold for profit. This point of view is made all the more dramatic by the fact that many of these paintings are never viewed again. They're housed in special climate-controlled darkened warehouses protected from both the elements and prying eyes. What is the value of art that is never seen? This is a conundrum equal to Barclay's puzzle about a tree falling unheard in the forest. What is the value of a painting that is never sold? That's easier. It's zero. A relevant answer because just a few months ago, Vanity Fair reported that the $450 million da Vinci is missing. No one knows where it is, and you can't sell what you don't have. Notice that the two questions I just asked are of very different types. What is the value of a painting that is never sold is a question about money. What is the value of art that is never seen is about the human experience. The first is an economic question, and the second is about meaning and beauty a dichotomy that almost all of our discussions of the arts fall into. Something is either valued in terms of exchange or it is valued in terms of the abstractness of human creativity. It is either priced or priceless. But suppose there's something in between. Suppose art is valued not just for the product or the experience, but for the skills it cultivates, the connections it makes, and the progress it inspires. What if art is actually a key component of economic development, not just because it is bought and sold, but because it inspires, communicates, and promotes equality. To take one simple example, people all over the world want faster internet because they want seamless access to streaming services like Netflix and Spotify. In other words, one of the major reasons why scientists developed 5G technology is so people can have more access to art. Yes, the cost of subscriptions we pay for online services are included in GDP calculation. But that desire for art is not, and that is a problem. Economics does not do well with things it can't measure. It invents terms like human capital so it can quantify education or political capital so it can assign numbers to influence. That very word, capital, specifically designates wealth that can be used to add value to itself. It refers to money or assets for investments, for starting companies or building things that increase capital. It is money used to make more money. So if capital is only good when it is used to achieve something else, then this means that for economists, human and political capital, education and influence, are also only good for what they can accomplish, not for the experiences they provide. To understand what I mean, just think about sending your children to college. Which would make you happier? Your kids coming home and telling you they have a job lined up or them returning and announcing that they're so glad they went because it was really interesting. Not many people would pay $100,000 in tuition for four years of, oh, wow, cool. I'm glad I know that now. Let's do something else. But of course, I've fallen into the same dichotomy again. I'm suggesting that it's one or the other. 
that either education has economic worth or it's just about experience. We have to find a way to avoid this caricature. We have to find a way to talk about human creativity in a way that shows that economic and human value go hand in hand. This is our guest's task. On today's show, we're going to talk about the economic value of the arts, copyright laws, upward mobility, tourism. But we're also going to discuss the role of the arts in innovation, social cohesion, and preventing violence. We're going to ask how we can measure creativity and whether we can increase it. But we're also going to try to explore what it means to cultivate it without measuring it at all. Often, doing philosophy involves creating a new language in order to avoid falling into intractable problems. But this time, our task is different. We're going to see if we can liberate economics from its own limitations. We're going to discuss money and the arts without letting one eclipse the other. This is no small task, but it will be no small victory either. If we reconcile the arts and wealth, we may be able to heal capitalism. And now our guest. Patrick Cabanda aims to link the arts and international affairs. He has earned bachelor's and master's degree at the Juilliard School of Music and a master's of law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He's consulted for the World Bank and the United Nations, performs as a musician around the world, and is the author most recently of the book, The Creative Wealth of Nations, Can the Arts Advance Development? Patrick, welcome to Why. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for having me on your show. And uh, before we proceed, I must congratulate you for... Uh, the 10 years you're celebrating this year. Is that correct? 10 years this year? That is correct. Thank you yes. so much. Congratulations, because I think this uh, topic, um, you are sure why philosophical discussions about everyday life, I think it's a wonderful show. Um, and I think um, I wish you another 10 more years and maybe another 10 and 100 and so <laughs> on. <laughs> well, I appreciate that very much. And if we're here that long, I expect you to be my side uh, for part of it at least. For those folks listening, if you'd like to comment on the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All is at Y Radio Show, one word, WHY Radio Show. Or email us at askwhy at und.edu and listen to all of our previous episodes for free and find information about our future shows at yradioshow.org. So, so, Patrick, I'm super excited about this because you are a really interesting dude. I mean, you've had a really fascinating life and you've combined a lot of things that I personally take an interest in, but I think lots of other people do. You can be described as a musician who's been pushed to theory or as a theoretician who has another life as a musician. Is it fair to divide your activities up like this? Is, is the division too stark? How connected are the music and the theory parts of your life? Um, I must say, uh, Jack, that that question comes up. In fact, um, as I had mentioned to you earlier, I have some friends and some strangers have asked me that why should I concern myself with issues dealing with economics and public policy? Why don't I just play music? It's much better to play music. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, there's a place for artists to be involved in public policy debates. Uh, when we are talking of issues of arts education, I think that teachers themselves teach uh, the arts. Um, are the best people to tell us what we could do to improve the experience of arts education. Now, when we are talking of issues of copyright, I think, yes, we should have wonderful lawyers, but I think if we also talk to artists to see what works for them and what could be improved, that's wonderful. And, of course, uh, there's been a huge debate, for example, on taxes in the United States. And as people from higher incomes, 
get favorable tax rates. Some artists, for example, are struggling. And I think uh, it's important for artists to have a say in that. And of course, um, on issues of fair pay. And of course, if you travel like I do, the issue of visas comes up. So if I want to go to play a concert somewhere and the visas um, are very difficult to get, it becomes a problem to actually even share my art. And of course, as a person who participates in this, I must speak up. But I may be lucky being based here, for example, in the United States, but there are artists from countries which uh, it's actually very difficult to travel, and I think we should recognize those kinds of things if we want to share art more democratically and also have more voices participate in this experience of the arts. You, I think you make a good case for that. You make the case in your book, and we're going to talk more detail about that later. But all of those examples represent the musician as having a special expertise, which I get. Do you think that artists have a different sensibility that they would bring to public policy? Is there a, an artistic, a creative uh, way of thinking that maybe public policy wonks could use? Oh, certainly. I mean, I think that let, let's look at uh, the issue of pay, exec, ex, especially executive pay. I talked to a number of people, and one of our, our issues which come up is that, oh, we need talented people. Um, so that's why we are, have to pay our executives a lot of money, because, of course, we are buying talent, um, and that talent deserves us kind of money. But, of course, if you look at the uh, problems which you get in places like Wall Street, of course, uh, these executives or financial analysts or even um, very high-performing economists also make mistakes, but they still get paid or bailed out big time. But when you look at you look at it, many artists I know and many I don't know work so hard. And many of them work so hard just because they love to share what they do or they love their work so deeply. So I, I argue a little bit in the book that, you know, maybe people in other areas should look at having the idea that let me do something for collective good because it will benefit everyone. Of course, it's nice to be paid very well. But I'm not doing this just because I need to be paid so much, but I'm doing it as an artist who loves what they do because what I'm doing brings meaning to me and others. And I think the art, arts are the place where we can really learn a lot about that. So there's, so there's something going on where lots of people who work for high salaries, I mean, obviously we're not speaking about everybody, but lots of people working for high salaries are pursuing what uh, philosophers and economists would call uh, extrinsic goods, right? Goods yes. that come outside. But an artist looks at intrinsic goods. They do it because yes. they love the art. Yes. And there is something more powerful character-wise, intellectually, just dramatically as someone who is involved in, in, in the project because they love the project. Do you think that um, – do you think that that translates to public policy or is that a set of skills that that intrinsic goodness? Is that a set of skills that is, is has to be put aside for public policy debates? No, I think they are connected. Let's look at the issue of, for example, um, fair pay. I really believe that um, everyone, of course, I would love to be paid so much. I would love to be paid $1,000 per minute when I play the organ. <laughs> <laughs> That would be great, or even more. But, you know, I do it partly because 
I, I love what I do. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be paid at all. <laughs> Does that make sense? So I think um, what is reasonable is quite um, a, a central question of what we have to look at. And I think if we start to say, okay, well, in terms of fairness, um, I'm not saying um, that, you know, we should be jealous of people who are making way so much money and people who have really hit a home run in what they do and they really um, earn um, such large salaries. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that in terms of fairness, what about others? If you look at it, everything we do is connected to other things. And that even the people at the bottom of the income ladder should also deserve to be paid a fair wage, especially when the cost of living is high. So it's not about maximizing my own salary because I'm the executive, I'm the leader, but also the how can I share this? And sometimes it comes up in contributing to um, issues which are dealing with the public, for example, paying fair taxes so that you know these taxes are invested in things which are for collective good. There is something you, – you mentioned executives making mistakes and how everyone makes mistakes. And it, I ended up thinking a little bit about how musicians especially but, but all artists, when they make mistakes, they have to keep going. You hit a wrong chord. You're off yes. time. You have to catch. You have to catch up. You have to get back to where you're going and you have to just move past that moment that it didn't work. At yes. the same time, you talk about the people at the lowest income level – People who often get forgotten, the moment a musician in a band is forgotten, the entire band falls apart, right? Yes. You yes. have to include all of the people with equal importance even if someone isn't playing at the moment. And so does that mean that this creative process can't be captured by – this larger economic discourse, this larger public policy discourse, I'm, I'm still really asking the same question, which is to what extent are we engaged in two different discussions and to what extent is that an illusion? And really this creativity, these, these, this art, artistic ways, they really can be part of the whole conversation. We just have to nudge it or, or, or manipulate it a little bit. Yeah, so for example, if you take um, the reasoning or the thought that I am a musician or a painter or a photographer because I believe that represents who I am and it, it brings out the best of myself and others around me, then I should pursue that regardless of how much money I'm being paid. That entire thought can be uh, basically um, put into other domains. When you look at politics, I think people should go into politics to serve uh, because it's called public service. But if you go to politics to make money, then uh, there's a problem there because then we are likely to get into issues of corruption. We all know too well, especially in um, countries which are more middle income or low income, but also in rich countries. So the same thing, if you go to get a job as an executive, yes, you should be paid your worth it, but what is the other thing beyond just making huge sums of money that is almost like a kind of service for collective good in that others also should be brought up? Because if you look at it, you don't do it by yourself. And that's why you said in the band, if you are playing in a band, you are playing with others. The moment you start trying to play against others, you see how things start to go right. <laughs> different ways. And how can we be collective? 
And then one thing we can learn from the arts, if you have a solo and you are the drum, you play the drums, um, and basically you're not a very famous person who is playing the, the drums, and um, maybe the guitarist is very famous. If it's your turn to play the solo, if I drown you out, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I have to collaborate with you. Even if you may not be as famous as I am, your part is so special at that moment that we should celebrate it and we should be playing together. So I think that's what I'm trying to say. We can learn from the arts. We, can, we are all in this together. And yes, definitely, we will never say that everyone should make the same kind of salary. But what is it from the arts of doing and working together with others as a unit for greater good we can learn from the arts? That's, I think, what I'm trying to get at. So, and, and, and we have this idea, at least in the United States um, and in many other countries, Western Europe, uh, um, and Asia, I know, I don't know as much about South Africa, uh, the, the South American continent or Africa, but there's a sense in many, and this will come up in the second half, developed countries, that leaders should be lawyers. Leadership should, uh, should think like lawyers and technocrats and bureaucrats. And, and, but, you, but if we think of leaders as creative people, as musicians, as artists, we have a different metaphor and a different way of thinking this. And you actually start the book talking about this. You suggest that leadership can be created, can thought of in terms of musical touch. Would you talk yes. a little bit about that and what the the idea of a leader as an artist brings to the table as opposed to a leader as a lawyer or a bureaucrat does? First of all, I should actually, that's a wonderful point you brought up, but um, let me add on something that is a very big difference between leadership and management. Hmm. That's the same kind of concept when you look at something I think we're going to talk about later on, capital and capability. Um, so basically, um, if I start from right there, in capability there's capital, because of course yeah. uh, they are related, but it's beyond that, okay? Because capital, as you uh, mentioned in the introduction, tends to be considered just on material objects. What can I get in from this for myself pretty much? Everything is basically quantified that way. But then capability looks at it in more different ways. So in the same way, you can argue that, of course, in um, leadership there is management. Um, but then uh, managing a problem is not the same thing as leading. <laughs> And that's why I like to joke that avoiding problems has never really solved them. <laughs> right. A leader will know that I cannot avoid this problem. If you are just a manager, like, how can I manage to get out of this conundrum? <laughs> and you find a way to walk out of it without actually solving it. Okay. So I think if we use that concept, touch, in this case, will mean in music. Do you play the piano, by the way? <laughs> uh, I do play the piano a little bit. Uh, I consider it playing. Most people consider it noise. <laughs> <laughs> so if you play the piano, maybe the guitar, even drums. But I think I'm using this mostly from the pianistic terms I used um, in the book. In that, if I'm going to play big chord, of course I need to use a lot of strength and the touch is going to be different. If I'm going to play softly, I have to use a different kind of touch. Now, life um, is basically like touch. <laughs> Sometimes you need these big chords and stuff. Basically, just put it out there. But then there are times where you have to be subtle. And then, of course, the same touch is varied. It's not like uh, soft and loud. 
There are times when the left hand has to be accompanying and the touch of it is quite um, very soft and the right hand now is led to solo out. So if you are a leader and then there's a group of people who are now need to be more leading from the behind, their touch will be soft and then there are solos which you have to bring out. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it, it, it does and, and, and I want to use an example and I try very hard not to uh, fall into partisan politics here so I'm not saying anything specific about either person but what it brings up is I think one of the fundamental differences between the American President Obama and President <coughs> Trump is that President Trump has no subtlety. Right, uh, populism in general and the populist upheavals uh, that 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 a lot of countries are experiencing. There's no subtlety involved, mm-hmm. whereas President Obama had a very subtle touch and was very quiet in many respects, independent of political policies and things like that. And so, I think this is a really useful description because if you think of a leader as a piano player, we can think of someone who is, you know, <laughs> Wagnerian pounding on the piano or, 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 or making the orchestra go full blast at all times. And then someone who is much more gentle, much more one of the four, Vivaldi-esque, right? That, that, yes, yes. And, and so we don't think about leadership in those terms at all. Is this – I'm trying to phrase this question from an economic perspective – does this prohibit the idea of homo economicus, right? Our tradition has this idea that there is this thing called an economic human being uh, yes, that yes. makes rational decisions, that maximizes their own good or pleasure and that you can reduce all human behavior to that. That's what we call homo economicus. Yes, yes. But music, art, dance, the creative arts – I don't think it fits into that mold. Does it? Is is Homo economicus compatible with the creative human being? Yeah, if you just want to make money and music, you know, you know, you can even get robots to play. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and these days, you know, we are talking about uh, artificial intelligence so much, and I always wonder what has happened to natural intelligence, because <laughs> I think we still need our natural intelligence. But um, um, this will take me back to say, like, for example, when I was. Growing up in Uganda, trying to get to music, I was told, oh, don't get around to play music. We are going to starve to death. <laughs> so you see, that's using the economic argument, okay? There's no music. There's no money in music or the arts. And to a certain extent, it's true. But I can tell you, I will never be where I'm not saying that I've touched the sky. But the friends I have, the living I make, and even I wrote this book using my musical training, um, so someone uh, did not realize, or the voices which promote this kind of not realize there are actually other benefits I, I have benefited. It's not just about making the money. Of course, that's important. But for some of us, the outlet has been in a more different way. I did not, if I just said, oh, let me uh, this, uh, abandon musicals, I will not pl- make money, I will not have benefited so much, <laughs> which turns out, okay, there are even some economic benefits. But they have come out differently in that that touch tends to be like, okay, play like this, and this this is the way we should have it. But there are subtleties, and there are beautiful things which come out of other ways of looking at things. In political terms, I think um, one of the things uh, President Obama mentioned is sometimes you need to lead from behind. And that's a very interesting kind of concept, because that's almost that touch has to be a little softer. It doesn't mean that you're not there. <laughs> But, you know, in many of the problems we have in the world, we have to work with other countries. 
um, even these negotiations on trade and others, you, being on the table with others, with different cultures, different values and stuff, means that sometimes you cannot always be pounding <laughs> as in the current moment to be like, because that's leadership is supposed to be this strong and stuff. That's much managing things the way you are doing them, but not actually <laughs> leading. I don't know if that, um, answers the question, but again, I think the arts can help us to see the subtlety. Okay, how things can be set up in moving forward. Doesn't mean that you're not there, but just remember that not everything is always um, fortissimo. It's <laughs> from be great. Yes. When, when we come back, I want to focus a bit more on the policy and economics, and I want us to talk a little bit about development economics and then get into the argument uh, from your book. But for the moment, you're listening to Jack Weinstein and Patrick Cabanda on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Patrick Cabanda, the author of The Creative Wealth of Nations, about the role of the creative arts in economies and in leadership and in public policy. And it makes me think of something that happened a few years ago. Uh, some of our long-term listeners may know that for reasons I cannot explain, I have a huge <laughs> following in Iran. Two of my books have been published in Persian. I have many, many Iranian friends on social network. A bunch of my blog posts and videos have been translated also into Farsi, into Persian. And a few years back, uh, one of the translators had arranged for me to give a lecture tour in Iran. I was super excited. It wasn't the best time of relations between the countries, but I was very excited to go. Uh, they were going to pay for it. He arranged for a visa for me, but the problem is that we don't have diplomatic relations, uh, direct diplomatic relations. So the visa was in the Pakistani embassy. And here's the problem. The folks who arranged it didn't understand how far away Washington, D.C. and North Dakota was. They didn't understand that I couldn't just go to the embassy to pick up the visa. So I kept calling the embassy to try to arrange something. But the Pakistani embassy is notorious for never answering their phone. They just don't do it. They don't answer their phone. They don't respond to requests. They just don't do it. And so I could never contact them. I could never contact, uh, get my visa and I could never go to the other country. It's a great disappointment and I hope that someday I get to do it. Patrick, I tell this story because I think it's illustrative of this tension between how we expect governments to work and how governments in other parts of the country work. And this is captured in this phrase, development economics. You are working in development economics. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what development economics is and why there's a special set of problems that may make it a little harder for someone in a developed country or in the United States to understand. Yes. Um, first of all, I think the term itself, development, has been uh, led to be associated, I think, now these days with technology. 
that are better and um, wonderful shining technology uh, is development and of course that's part of it but beyond that and also like big infrastructure projects um, in that this go build nice wonderful airports and I love beautiful airports no question about that <laughs> and uh, highways which are working and stuff and then things like electricity which are uh, they are all necessary but then we forget that actually development is also this is for everybody as an artist will tell you, 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 you always have to keep on improving yourself. And if you don't practice, you forget what you learned. You have to keep on improving. So in many countries, actually you're talking of phone calls. I'm lucky when I went to Juilliard, I took a course called the Business of Music, which they actually taught us that if you're going to go on an interview, be there at least 20 minutes early. <laughs> uh -huh. So that came from uh, Juilliard School. And learn how to answer phone calls. Okay, uh, because if you don't answer phone calls, you know, especially if you are New York City people, there are many, many other options. Right. <laughs> so you have to be able to pick up um, basically phone. And this was in a course, a very serious course. Um, in fact, I think it's one of the things I learned there in addition to, to playing the music. But you can realize where I'm getting at that sometimes for many countries, um, the bureaucratic procedure um, of getting a visa. Actually, this also happens if I'm going, if I'm in some country, like maybe Uganda or Nigeria, trying to get a visa to come to the United States. It's not always the easiest thing. But I think there's a, a level of development with all this technology and stuff. Why should it be that difficult? And some countries have done very well here. I think I remember the first time I went to Hong Kong to play concert. I was actually uh, being paid to do this and I needed a work visa <laughs> because, of course, I would have to pay taxes. And they sent my visa in the mail. I'll never forget <laughs> that. Because <laughs> normally, but for me, you see, that's a, Hong Kong may have its own um, issues and stuff, but you see, they are developed in a way that's the way I want to put it that way. This is, it's basically efficient. Because, you know, <laughs> you know, the visa got to me in time. Um, it didn't get lost, but you can see how, um, Basically, it's a, it's a form of development. They may have a wonderful airport and things like that, but if they can't get some of the bureaucracies like this to work in a developed way, then it's also not really under development. Does that make sense? It, 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 it does. It does. And, and I received my visa to China in the mail, and I thought that that was very strange as well. At the same time, there is a problem, and, and, and a big portion of your book is – is about this, which is that there are these countries that are post-colonial, that have this long history of being exploited for their resources, that don't have uh, what sometimes get called developed educational infrastructures. They don't have the same kind of mobility. They don't have the same kind of um, security uh, in terms of social net as as some countries do. You talk about these countries. You talk about Uganda, you talk about Haiti, you talk about um, Zimbabwe, I think. Uh, uh, um, you have a very interesting conversation uh, about in, in, in the city of Bogota, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, part of what you are trying to argue is that there's something that happens in the creative arts that will help us equalize the post-colonial uh, developing economies with the more developed, I'll call them colonialist economies. Um, how does that work and, and why is this a particular set of problems? Um, in terms of how they can um, get, um, uh, promote, uh, make progress. Yes. 
Yes, yes, are using the arts. Is that yes, uh, that, what you're getting? Yes. Yeah, so I took a course um, and uh, professor, uh, one of a very few African professors I've, I have had in my life, um, or adult life, unfortunately passed away. His name was Kalistas Juma. He was Kenyan. And I took his course on innovation, innovation systems, and this was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in that course, I learned that hmm, innovation is not just about building products. Innovation is also actually getting ideas to work. <laughs> you know, it's a very interesting concept because I've never thought. Because normally, again, as I said a moment ago, innovation is associated with all oh, the very nice, big, uh, wonderful phone, <laughs> a physical product, but in yeah, from Kalista's Jumailanda, no, no, innovation can also be about finding new legal systems which are working. Uh, this is just an idea to get it to work. And, for example, in many countries we may have laws on the paper, but they are not executed. How can we be innovative to get uh, people to actually obey these laws? And I think when you look at the systems in countries like Uganda, yeah, we definitely need a lot of wonderful roads and things like that, but also we can be more innovative of having inclusive education. And by that, I mean that, you know, not everyone is going to become an accountant. Not everyone is going to become an engineer. But with all the creative arts in woodwork, how can we translate this into design? And getting people to solve problems, um, political participation, how do the arts come in? One of the innovations which happened there, um, as I see in the book, uh, when I was growing up, HIV, for example, was a big thing. Classmates died. And as, uh, as I note in the book, uh, politicians gave uh, speeches. Um, uh, religious leaders, you know, preached <laughs> and mm. preached this issue. There. The one person who I think really made a difference was a musician who started to sing about AIDS. And it was so relatable. But if you look at innovation that way, someone thought that, hmm, maybe instead of approaching these problems by really giving positions to push out pamphlets and things like that, let's be more innovative or creative and finding someone who can deliver this message. Does that make sense? So in this case, actually, Uganda having um, the music or a wonderful musician, are they, they are using what they have to promote, to make progress. <laughs> so that's one of the ways I think you can look at um, these kinds of um, um, ways of uh, making um, innovation work by using local knowledge. Certainly there is no more efficient and effective way of getting to young people than going through music. And, and actually, in fact, most people are affected by popular music in one form or another. And so if you can get a, a song, a pop song that is talking about safer sex or, or the dangers of HIV, that's going to have a profound effect. And I keep thinking back of... of, of uh, Someone you quoted in the book, it, it, it's one of my favorite points in the book, you write um, or you quote, in the race for economic development, would you rather bet on a country with a million tons of endowed zinc or one with a couple of extra IQ points and a free flow of ideas, right? Part of what you're talking about is that, that what the creative arts do is create this opportunity for exploration of ideas, which is in many ways more of a commodity and more development potential than simple resources. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think um, that idea came from um, um, an American economist called Todd G. Buchholz. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And uh, in his uh, 2007 book called New Ideas from Dead Economists. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a big fan of titles, and I think he really did nail it. 
and he was looking at all this because we always look at them in a different way but dug deep and it's like you know you may have everything uh you have but if you don't have the ideas to put this uh to to get this um basically use these communities they are pretty much useless <laughs> And also, um, if you go further and look at people like Amartya Sen, who his famous book, Development as Freedom, which I'm sure you know, yes. that book really, he did not say development as money. <laughs> but development as a freedom means a lot of things. Uh, freedom to be uh, to, um, study what you want. Freedom for women to be participating in the, in the economy. Freedom to work freely. Freedom to basically... Uh, go find different opportunities in many, many different ways. Because in a way uh, that um, people are not just constricted in one thing. It's a completely different way of looking at something as development, as infrastructure, <laughs> even though that's there. But um, I think this is a broader perspective that, you know, um, I, um, basically ideas and the freedom to pursue them is a very, very uh, important factor in making human progress. Are the creative arts and the freedoms to have creative uh, exploration, is that a barometer for general freedom in communities? Can you have free flow of ideas without free-flowing creative uh, products and processes? Um, you can, but they will not be as agile as they could be. <laughs> and I think maybe agile, I hope it's the right word. To I think it is. Um, in that um, we can have a system, um, and I think actually by the American, um, uh, let's look at making a car, and you have an assembly plant. You know that it's wonderful to have a, um, there's a section which puts on tires, and there's a section which puts on uh, uh, other parts, like maybe doors and all these things, they are, come on the assembly plant nicely, and there's, we, we create a system uh, in which it works that way, okay? And that's, uh, of course, useful because things come up pa, 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 or in a wonderful way. But if you start thinking of other things of where we have to be out of a um, um, mechanical plant, we have to be more uh, thinking in quite many different ways. What works in a certain extent will not work in another extent. And recognizing that will force you to be like, how do we get over this? Okay. And I'll give you an example, um, and this is related in a way, but also maybe not so related. But um, a friend of mine told me a story of what I may call African economics. And um, in, in the story, um, a friend says, I think it was somewhere maybe in Zambia or Malawi, somewhere around that part of the world. And a friend was um, working with the World Bank, uh, stationed in that part of the world. So he went to buy items from a lady uh, I think it was either tomatoes or oranges or, you know, sweet potatoes. I don't recall the details, but he said that Ali told him that one time there's a gentleman who came with a big SUV and he looked at the products the lady have. Let's say the products were tomatoes. I said, how many? I was like, oh, maybe $10 a batch of these tomatoes, baskets of tomatoes, like he counted, or 10 of them, okay, great. Would you please put all of them in my car? <laughs> and the lady looked at him and said, No, I won't, sir. You can only have one or two. It's like, Why? <laughs> it's like, You know, because I have other customers who also want to buy. If you just <laughs> take it by yourself, they will not be able to buy something. So she refused. <laughs> 
in the typical Western way, especially in America, would be like, thank you very much. <laughs> you can have all that. But the kind of thinking like that is not really to do with making music, but how are we sharing and making music together in society through that kind of thinking? Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it, it does make sense, and it's really compelling because I heard a, a version of a similar story. A friend went to Cuba about 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, and there was this ice cream store that, that had – uh, lots and lots of people waiting in line, and it was it was January, or February, and my friends started talking to them, and they said, "Yes, we closed the ice cream store in in the summer because the demand is too much, and we just can't handle it." <laughs> and <laughs> it's that it's that same sort of thing. But there is this sense that the person who is selling the oranges, it's not just they have the responsibility to make money, but they have the responsibility to be available and to. Yes attend to their customers and and to I know this this phrase is loaded but to distribute the goods fairly yes. and and that's a very very different perspective right you have I don't know if you have this I, I don't know if this is elsewhere in the world but there's a phenomenon in the United States where um, young people will find a band and they'll love the band and the band will be a little known band and then all of a sudden the band will have a big hit and the yes. fans will become angry and they're yes. like, I hate it that this band is popular, right? Yes. But anyone who knows any musician knows what the musician wants is the largest audience possible. They want exactly. – and so is it possible to balance this sense of responsibility and, and distributive justice, again, for lack of a better term, with this desire to be secure, have success, sell all of your products – is there a way to navigate those tensions? Yes, and the way to navigate those tensions is digging deeper and seeing what is working for everyone. Okay, And if we go back to new ideas from data economists about the idea of would you rather have things <laughs> or rather have a free flow of ideas, the freedom to have exchange ideas, that will mean like let's look around and see how is this working in different kinds of contexts other than saying it's working just for me alone, it has worked in California, then it must work in New Jersey. For example, one thing which is going on right now is that there are wonderful innovators in the United States, in many states, okay? But guess where most of the money goes if you are looking for seed funding? Silicon Valley. <laughs> See, because people want to make, if I want to make uh, basically return on my investment, that's where <laughs> I should go. And I'm not saying that's not right, but if 95% of it is going there, then you're creating another kind of problem where, like, um, there's a concentration of just wealth uh, in this one, or basically the investments are basically really pointing in one direction. Yet there are other people who need some seed funding to get their ideas also going. So if we go back to the band issue, indeed, some musicians, I would love to be famous and playing concerts. <laughs> with all fans licking my, my feet, it would be great. <laughs> but in the meantime, I know many artists and this definitely who don't, don't, want, don't want to be famous and who would rather be at a small place and really um, pursuing the art in a, in a small sense. And also, I'm actually right now producing a paper for the United Nations Development Program. It's for the Human Development Report for 2019, which is dealing with um, inequality in the 21st century. My portion of the, uh, I'm preparing my portion, the background paper, deals with inequality within the arts. 
and as I was doing research, it turned out that actually the superstar um, kind of phenomenon is common in the arts, that all musicians, uh, basically the superstars, make a lot of money. Um, but then those who are not in that category of superstars make nothing. Right. <laughs> Uh, pretty much. I mean, you can't get lucky. It's not, of course, black and white. There are variations, but generally, um, uh, we all thought that technology is going to bring all the fruits to everyone and will be more democratic. It's not entirely true. <laughs> I mean, someone can discover you, but definitely the ones who are enjoying the fruits of this kind of um, economy are really tend to be the superstars. And that's why uh, there's this tendency for like, if you can make it big and scale, great. Now, what's um, interesting, though, is that a lot of famous musicians also know that they are, they are base, um, their fans are their base, and that they try so hard to be that they accommodate their fans. <laughs> and that's why they may say, like, hey, if I release a new album, uh, which is going to be on iTunes or something, I'm going to allow fans to maybe um, download this for very small fee or for, uh, for free uh, for uh, maybe a week <laughs> because they still want to um, keep their fans, I think, uh, following them. And of course, this in a way ends up promoting your work, <laughs> as you know. But this definitely is no question that, you know, it's tempting to become big and famous because there is a lot of money there for the most part. <laughs> so so y you bring up a couple different related issues that you address also in the book, and, and I'm thinking of uh, uh, free distribution and, and, and piracy and intellectual property. I think it was Radiohead a few years back uh, famously released their album online and said, pay whatever you wish. And the fans yes. ended up paying as much as they would have paid uh, if they had bought it. And then for decades and decades, the Grateful Dead would let anyone record their concerts off of their uh, uh, mixing board. Uh, and so you have this these thousands and thousands of Grateful Dead bootlegs that only increased the value of the Grateful Dead brand, right? <laughs> Grateful Dead. Yes. Um, so you have this tension with the economics of creativity. In, in the one hand, you have to distribute in order to make a name, and the more that people hear your music, the more chance they have to love your music. On mm. the other hand, you don't you don't want to pressure people to give their things away for free, especially if they're not making any money. So yes. how does this tension between intellectual property and privacy and 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 um, exposure, how does this relate to your project and how does it relate to in particular to things like international trade? Does it make things more equal or does it, as some bands suggest, make things profoundly unjust? Yeah, yeah. So what has happened is that um, because this again goes back to the idea of um, uh, putting emphasis on development in products other than ideas. For me, culture, music, painting are ideas, pretty much. <laughs> They're in that category. So there's uh, the emphasis of uh, exporting coffee, emphasis of exporting tea, uh, um, gold, minerals, timber, things like that. But very little emphasis on really exporting even education, because I argue that if you go to Africa or Ghana, Uganda, Nigeria, or Kenya to learn how to play African drums. That's actually international trading services. <laughs> this is actually 
a very important point in your book and I think more controversial than people want to understand and I think personally game-changing yes. that to think of someone going to another country to learn uh, – Nigerian drumming. Um, and it was Nigeria you talked about, not Zimbabwe. That was mm. my mistake earlier. But this kind of cultural exchange should be thought of as an as economic trade and yes. not bracketed off. So can you talk about why that's important and what that does? Because I think that, that our listeners are probably not that aware of that controversy. And that's a huge game-changing point that you make in the book. Yes, yes. So as it turns out, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, came up with these four modes of supplying services. And this is to do with trade and supply. And I think to make it easy, um, an easy example, um, without even going to Nigeria to study African drumming, we can say if you go to Cuba, which I think actually a few American um, Americans have done, to get surgery of some sort, right. that's actually international trade. <laughs> Okay, if um, Cuba or Germany or Italy sends someone here uh, to teach music, if they send a professor and that person retains their citizenship, it's also international trade. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and <laughs> and, and why yes. why wouldn't it? Why would traditional economists not think of it as international trade? Yeah, because uh, the way things are told, um, I'm talking of this, I recently talked to a young, brilliant young uh, student, actually I think in a graduate program, and I told that my book, well, one of the chapters, well, at least three chapters, because I think chapter four, five, six are really to do with the trading services mm -hmm. following these modes of um, supply. I told her that um, um, when you... You, you you get your phone here and you go and you find this a website from Nigeria and you find that there's a link um, on Nigerian music and you decide to um, sign up for this link to stream music and you put in your credit card and pay, that's international trading services. <laughs> and then she was like, no, that's downloading. <laughs> <laughs> so if a student who is studying <laughs> economics can think of it that way, then, of course, you're not going to be surprised um, that if um, people who are not exposed to this kind of literature will think of it also, uh, that it's not trade. But it's partly because we are told, in fact, we have gone where uh, the example I gave to the student was, you know, where before, at least I recall in Africa, we used to have butter trade. In that, you know, you had a wonderful um, uh, kind of um, item. Let's say you make wonderful vegetable soup. <laughs> And I do make um, chilies <laughs> soup. So b b without money, we just exchange. <laughs> that was trade, but it was butter trade. You see, we have not used money, but exchanging things. Or you make wonderful um, shirts from cotton or from someplace or North Dakota. I think you have wheat around there. Right. <laughs> wonderful bread. And maybe I make um, wonderful vegetarian um, sausages uh, from right here in Maryland or somewhere in Washington and we exchange them at was butter trade. So um, without putting money uh, into the system. So when money came of course that changed the way things work. So today um, services represent a big big um, sort of a sector but we don't think of it that way because okay, you buy shoes online. <laughs> you see? 
and you order a book online, but you don't understand that if you go and start streaming music, it's actually also an exchange. <laughs> so, so we have this problem, right, that economists, first of all, they divide things into um, exchange and barter, as you said. They also mm-hmm. divide things in terms of formal and informal markets, and then there are black yes. markets and gray markets. And, and also, downloading is hard to quantify, Right? Yes, yes, yes. In that you can say, okay, this is one download. You might even be able to say how much it would have been worth if you had paid. Mm-hmm. But economics doesn't work on, you know, if you had paid. Economics only works on, on you paying. And then yes. there's another aspect that's complicated that you also bring up in the book, which is part of the problem with creative goods is that they're mixed goods. They're both public and private. Yes. This why – first of all, why – what do you mean by that when you say creative goods are both pr- public and private? And second, why does that – why does that complicate things? And actually, I, I want to take a step back and I want to explain something uh, to the audience, which I think you'll be familiar with. Adam Smith makes this remark in, in The Wealth of Nations. Uh, I think it's Wealth of Nations, not Three More Sentiments, that, that, that women's work never enters the public registers. Exactly. And, and yes. what he means by that is that the work that women do, the sewing, the cleaning, all mm. of the stuff that mm. has in theory, economic value isn't recorded in, in, in as, as, as GDP, although he didn't have GDP at that point. Mm. And so mm. you are, in essence, making the same claim that mm. creative activity and creative exchanges do not enter the public register. So why is this a problem and why is the fact that it's public and private good, why does that add complexity to it? Yes, uh, because the public good, as, uh, as you saw, is a public good, and actually in this case it could be a public service, <laughs> you can look at it, it's for the public, it's for everyone to enjoy. Meanwhile, privately, as it is, is privately, you can enjoy it. So basically, if we blast music outside, I can enjoy it here, um, but doesn't mean that my enjoyment diminishes <laughs> someone else's enjoyment, okay? And then there are most, some cases where you find that if I'm confined just to listen to music privately in my living room, it's very different from the kind of music which is played um, with uh, outside where everyone can enjoy. And I think that that makes, makes it extremely uh, complicated. And then uh, we don't understand that even um, the public goods, if we want to create them, they must be invested in. <laughs> In that, um, for everyone to enjoy art, um, art museum or mu- arts education stuff, then there must be some sort of investment through uh, public, the public sector, for example, to make sure that this works. Because if you just rely on people donating, maybe they would rather donate on other things. But having a balanced way of having to see that, okay, those public goods are indeed for everyone to enjoy, we must find a way to be able to sustain them. But if we go back, um, I think, to the issue of um, uh, the trade in services Um, what I see is that many countries especially those in Africa I think without them realizing that they have a tradable item that you know I know many Americans that could be wrong I've never done a huge survey but I run to a lot of people who would love to go to Africa to learn African music and African drumming and things like that but the countries in Africa don't see that as an export, okay? <laughs> and I think one easy way to look at it, a lot of the times go open up a magazine on some airlines going to Africa, you're going to see uh, um, advertisements featuring safaris. 
at all come and see safari in the Serengeti or, or go, go, go see wild animals. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, the people asked to go see, but very well, they're like, you know what, if you come at some university, maybe Makero University in Uganda where I come from, and spend the summer three months learning African dance, that's education, but it's also part of international trade. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, so let, 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 me, let me take a, 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 a huge step um, meta step and, and, and let me describe the philosophical problems for the, the, the main problem for the audience and first of all tell me if I misinterpret you but then, but then let's, let's see if we can summarize the main point. So there's a, there's a basic philosophical question which is mm. how do you measure the wealth of a nation, right? Yes. Adam yes. Smith famously said you don't measure the wealth of nations by the amount of money in the borders. You measure mm. it by the, the, the labor and the, mm. the, the, the products. And so for mm. 250 years uh, since, since the wealth of nations, we've measured the wealth of a nation by these things, GDP, GNP, the, mm. this – the exchange the – um, that uh, not only what is created, uh, what is produced, I should say, in a nation, but what mm -hmm. is traded. And yes. what you are doing is you're coming along and saying this definition is too narrow because mm -hmm. wealth should also include creative products. Not just creative products that make money, although many do, mm -hmm. but creative products that promote knowledge and cultural exchange, that creativity should count as wealth and yes. that economics does not adequately allow for the measure of wealth in its true nature, which is not just products and uh, uh, not just product products, mm. but also what we've learned, what we've experienced, what we've traded, the bread that we've bartered, the dances that we've learned. So am I correct in saying that your basic point is our definition of the wealth of nations is too narrow. We have to find a way to measure or to, I should say, include the creativity and the exchange of creative ideas and creative mm. knowledge in order to adequately measure the wealth of nations. Yes, and if we do that, it will allow us to consider that, um, for example, this question, uh, which comes up, who used to cook Adam Smith's dinner? Right. Okay. That's a, a, a book by a, a woman from about 10 years ago, right? I think. Yes, I, yeah. think, yeah. I think that comes up um, because then when we understand that Adam Smith was writing his book, but he had to eat, okay? And the people preparing uh, meals, the dinner comes up because I think um, uh, having wonderful dinner is always a good thing. Uh, so it comes up, you know, if we would count. Uh, who used to cook Adam Smith's dinner will understand that, for example, a lot of uh, housework, which many, many women do, uh, doesn't get accounted into GDP. Yet, it basically helps us to make progress. Because if um, a woman goes home, cooks for you, and does laundry and something, you are actually using that time, you're freeing up that time, you're not paying for it, uh, using it to do research or do other things, or relax. Meanwhile, when you get a check, your check is counted in GDP, but the woman's contribution is not. Right. <laughs> and I think when we start from there, we can understand that indeed other things, even other paper I contributed to the UN for the 2015 report on work for human development was on creative work. Okay, a lot of creative work, maybe even musicians who are playing in the subway, we don't count them in GDP, but if they are they here, if you, you are 
going in a subway and hear a wonderful song which inspires you <laughs> and you do very well that day or it inspires your mood, that's also actually contributing to um, some sort of progress because in a way you're going to be more productive. But that musician who made you happy or musicians who are playing this music um, are not being compensated fairly. <laughs> but it does not mean that what they are doing is not important. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. So now I want to take the next step, and I want to I, I, I want to repeat a claim again that I th I think I understood from your book, and then I want to ask you a question about it. Yes. So we've established that one that, that your main argument is that the measure of wealth is too narrow. You have to measure uh, you have to measure creative uh, exchanges as well. Mm -hmm. So then you you go along and you say, if I understood you correctly, and that means that places like Nigeria. Uh, places like Haiti, places like Uganda are actually wealthier than yes. we give them credit for because yes. we make all of this stuff that they can do invisible. It doesn't count. So they're so yes. they're so they're poor. So so I have that right, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. In fact, uh, I, I if I forget, I must mention that I am trying to write a piece, which I will say we should even get rid of a term developing, and develop, developed countries. Okay. The reason, because of that, is again thinking of uh, the, the issues uh, you're bringing up from the book. Because if you're always looking at Haiti as a developing country, you don't consider the wonderful art they have. Right. I don't know if you've, you've seen some Haitian art. Uh, some of the amazing, most amazing artists. But we don't hear much about it because we're obsessed with um, their problems. Right. If we start looking at the actually they are very competitive, if the, you want to use the economic word, when you look at them from their culture, even actually, I'm, I'm not saying that I have explored the issue of saying that cuisine is part of an art, their food is also remarkable. <laughs> okay, If you really look at their music, look at their paintings, uh, the food, even if you are even looking at scenic beauty, which actually Japan counts, <laughs> uh, which I, I note in chapter 9, they are actually very wealthy. But we look at them in terms of GDP and we are shortchanging them. So when they come to negotiate for loans, they're like, oh, as a poor country. We already, you know, if I'm negotiating with you and I know that, you know, uh, you, you, I'm doing you even a favor to invite you, you see what happens. <laughs> so so you, you, you've actually just hinted at the answer to the question that I want to ask. So here's the question that I want to ask. So, I, so okay, these countries, Haiti... Uh, Uganda, Nigeria, they're, they're wealthier than we give them credit for. Yes, but then yes. someone who's listening to this conversation could come along and say, that's all fine and good. That's all very pretty and philosophical, but they're still poor. <laughs> they still yes. don't have food on the table. How do you respond to that? And what does this new category of wealth give them that allows them to get past that poverty other than saying, well, you know, life isn't really suffering, right? I mean, other than saying, you know, they're not really poor, it's an illusion. Of course, many of these people are poor and many of these people don't have, have, have adequate food or shelter or sanitation, access to mm. toilets and things like that. So to the person who hears this and says, but they're still poor, what does this offer? Okay. And that's where I think where I really wanted to write this book. <laughs> Because um, if you're looking at them in terms of money, and that definitely GDP-wise, of course, Haiti um, could use more resources in terms of the instrumental dimension. And that would mean that, okay, we are pouring in resources. But recall, going back to, I think, one of the things you said, it's really not about the things you have, but the ideas. And those ideas, for example, a lot of money is being poured into Haiti. But you hear what happens to that money. <laughs> it normally doesn't get to where it needs to go. <laughs> right. 
because we have not figured out a system to make it work that it's actually going to help the poor there. So and part of a reason uh, why this is important, if you're always looking at it's like you saying that, oh, I'm not going to have a guest on my show unless they are all worth $10 million. Okay? <laughs> if you don't There's have no $10 million, dollars, yeah. <laughs> don't come to this show. <laughs> you see? Uh, because, but you are bringing in people who, you know, with various backgrounds because you are looking for the other kind of enrichment which is nothing to do with how rich they are. Does that make sense? It, it does, but there's also, if I, if I understood what you said in passing a couple minutes ago, there's also another element to this, which is when the WTO decides who to lend money to, mm -hmm. they can say, well, look, Haiti may not be able to pay us the money in this way, but if mm -hmm. we distribute the money to the creative classes, if we distribute, if we create exchange, then they can pay the money back in different ways. Yes. And so, so yes. by calling them wealthier, they become more candidates for the kind of capital <laughs> yes. that they need in order to <laughs> yes. advance. So basically, it's like um, going uh, to uh, negotiate and you're all on equal right. um, uh, footing. If you are just using the economic argument, um, America is going to negotiate with Haiti. America's GDP is not trillions of dollars. GDP, Haitian Jews, you know, I don't know if it even reaches, you know, anywhere <laughs> um, in, 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 in close to a trillion. But, you know, then you, you have this weight where one country is so small and so long and then there's a huge big country and that's the power dynamics. But you're like, hmm, if you come in looking at them, like, look, Haiti, the culture is remarkable. Where they have these paintings and stuff, how can we do that? We elevate that, and then you are negotiating as equal partners. Then that makes a difference, and it makes a different loans. And then one thing which I wanted to say earlier and I forgot was to do with branding and with the ideas. Right. Okay. So, for example, if I make a shoe, okay, and that shoe says "Made in France," okay. I am more likely to pay top dollar for that show, okay? And the nuances here is that a survey entrepreneur may go to Haiti and may make that, um, get that shoe made there and takes it to France and slaps on a label. <laughs> and then I might buy it here from on Madison Avenue or some other store paying top dollar, <laughs> okay? Because I have this association with France and quality, okay? But recall that that shoe was actually in the... Um, in the first place made <laughs> in Haiti. And actually, if you get into the issue of uh, trade and value added, which I talk about in the book, it's complicated because parts come from different kinds of oil. Right. So branding is a very, very important concept when you look at um, ideas because it's a branding is an idea to try to make sure that you legitimize something uh, in other people's view. I think if you look at it, it's not really to do with advertising. They are quite completely different. So... If Haiti has it has a brand as a poor country, no money, starving all the time, that's a different kind of brand, okay? If you look at Haiti in terms of art, okay, creativity and other things, it's then richer, and that's another kind of brand, okay? So then, if I'm going to buy a shoe, if Haiti is also really celebrated for design, I'll be very proud to buy a shoe from Haiti, not just because I'm doing them a favor, but I'm really believing in their creative, and that has implications in the economic <laughs> domain. Does that make sense? Sure. So if, <laughs> so if, if you buy a shoe because 
18th century French fashion houses established their reputation and you're paying an extra $150 for that French history, yes. you're not really getting anything. But if you're paying for a Haitian shoe where this Haitian creative market allows for a one-of-a-kind individual handcrafted special shoe, yes. um, then you're actually getting more even yes. though the brand suggests that you're getting less. Yes, and that's what I'm I'm saying we should change <laughs> in that we should celebrate that creativity regardless of that GDP um, sort of uh, metric. We've gotten to the core of the issues. We, the, there's wonderful discussions in your book about tourism. There's stuff about environmentalism. There's a wonderful chapter about gender equity. Um, for those who are persuaded by the conversation, for those who understand the basic point that creativity is part of the value and wealth and now the brand of a, a nation. Hmm. What would you say is the next step conceptually and maybe even in terms of actions? What do people do in order to support this idea that wealth needs to include creative exchange and creative activity? Where do we go from here? Okay, well, since we are here, we are also talking about economics here. The first thing, people should really buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure there's a link on the webpage. It's very understandable. It's not technical at all. So, 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 so. <laughs> so that's the first thing I'll, do, I'll say. Yeah. But also the second thing, not just buy it, but read it. <laughs> um, so uh, that's what I think. But um, the other thing I will say is that in, even in this country, arts education is struggling, and I'm very, very strong. I strongly talk about arts education because through arts education, we learn education can change people's perceptions. But if you keep on cutting um, um, uh, the arts um, in school, a lot of uh, people grow up without really having any sort of kind of meaningful exposure on the arts. Okay? And that will mean that if they go to Haiti or Uganda, so they, they may not even appreciate the kind of discussion in terms of looking at at all, to be curious of the creativity there. And that's very, very important. I think that we have. So if I say if you can write, you are senator or you are college professor, a president or some council person, if they are to increase funding for us education, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I think that's a concrete step we can do. Yeah, the concrete uh, thing we can do, we have the internet, but uh, interestingly, the internet has created a certain kind of silo where, like, I just talk to people who I know and I just look at the things I want to see without really actually looking at broader things. Even today, discussions can come up, oh, is Uganda really close to Nigeria? <laughs> oh, how far is it, you know? Um, so yet, when you go on the internet, you can actually see maps and look at... Um, uh, the geography of these countries. So I'm saying this because even in culture, you can look at, okay, I can go and Google uh, African music, okay, traditional music. What can I learn from this, okay? You can educate yourself about that. Okay, look, okay, I'm, I've heard about um, the issue of copyright being like it's not fair for artists. How do I get to understand more about this? You can't actually Google and find information, debates about these kinds of things. So then you're educating yourself about that. But then the other thing about this is that really being astute in terms of uh, ideas of public policy in that if you have candidates you're supporting on bigger things, 
what is their position? You're going to hear a lot of uh, debates um, coming up as a U.S. election. Uh, I, I bet, uh, good. I mean, who knows if we we'll get to hear people really actually making meaningful uh, um, suggestions and making points about why the arts matter. You're going to hear about science, technology. Um, I think science, technology, and engineering and math is that STEM. But you're not going to hear about science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. <laughs> okay. How can we push these kinds of things to be part of the really big discussions? And then international affairs. Uh, earlier on, you said about your book um, being translated, your books being translated into Persian, and congratulations on that. And I think ideas can bring us together. What can you learn about other countries' cultures? Not just the popular culture, but traditional culture. What's their history coming up in the culture dimension? And how do we connect? How does culture connect us as human beings, even if we are so different? So we have we have the practical agenda of writing our representatives of listening to our candidates of buying your book, but we also have the um, the, the 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 more personal agenda or abstract agenda of don't just listen to the music, learn about the culture. Don't just just download the the, the song, look at the map, try to get a, a, a sense of this. And what that will do ultimately is give us a very holistic, very robust view of what wealth means in the fullest sense of the term. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on Why. Oh, thank you so much, Jack. You've been listening to Patrick Kabanda and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We were talking with Patrick Cabanda about the creative wealth of nations. We were asking how to measure wealth that includes creative exchanges, that includes cultural ideas, that includes all of the stuff that doesn't get measured in terms of products. We talked about Haiti and we talked about how we think of it as a poor country and a place that needs assistance. Next time you read about Haiti and some disaster or next time you read about Haiti and uh, hear about their poverty, take some time and look up Haitian art. Take some time and examine Haitian crafts. Look a little bit about the history of Haiti. Try to figure out what it is that's positive that Haitians have to offer that isn't being talked about. They're not just recipients. They're also givers. They're not just takers. They're also people who make our world richer and better. And ask, is the, are the things that they make and the things that they create, is that worth cultivating? One of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about is the fact that in Nigeria, there's a huge film industry called Nollywood, Nigerian Hollywood, Nigerian Bollywood, and that you can get Nigerian films online. There's a Roku channel for Nigerian films. 
next time someone is complaining about the Nigerian scam email that they get or Boko Haram, take a little time and see what are they doing for films? What kind of filmmakers are there? What can we learn from them that maybe would have made a Steven Spielberg film better? All of this is Patrick's point. It's not just that we're ignoring the creativity, although we may be. It's not just that we're not trying hard to get a full point of view, although we may be. It's that when we describe countries in terms of rich and poor, when we describe countries in terms of developed and undeveloped, when we describe things in terms of the first world and the third world, we're missing the fact that all of this ignores this tremendous creative culture and production that people travel all around the world for, that people go as tourists, that people go as students, and that we learn from. There is a story in his book about how Michael Jackson ended up stealing a Nigerian musician's song and that person never got credit for it. We have to give people more credit for the robustness of their cultural product and of their creativity. And we have to count that as the wealth of nations, not just in terms of our respect for them, but in the way that we trade with them, partner with them, and treat them as equals. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for joining me. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.